0: Well, good morning, New Life Church. It's great to be back here again. Uh, I remember the last time I was here, I apologized for not bringing my family. Well, they are here, and uh, love for you to meet them, my wife and our beautiful two-year-old daughter, Amelia. It's uh, really a privilege to be here again this morning, um, and uh, especially to open God's Word with you and to preach to you. Let me just pray once more so that we will prepare ourselves to hear from the Lord again. God, we do thank you, Lord, that um, you have given us your word and you have spoken to us in your word. We pray that we will listen, uh, give us the ability to understand what it is that you are telling us and speaking to us. And we pray for New Life Church. We pray, Lord, that you would use this church to be a clear witness to Jesus in this place and around the world. We pray this for your glory in the name of your son. Amen. I love reading biographies of missionaries. And um, if you want to read a really fun biography, I would recommend reading the biography of John Payton. He was the missionary to the islands of New Hebrides. And uh, he went with his wife in the year 1858. Now, John Payton, before he decided to leave for these islands, had a very successful ministry in Scotland. That's where he was from. Um, And he had seen unprecedented success in his ministry. Hundreds of unchurched people were attending his services. And... um, Uh, When he was at the height of his ministry, he decided that he wants to leave all of it and uh, go to these people who did not have the gospel, who were known to be cannibals in these islands. And the mission was going to be dangerous. In fact, he knew just 20 years before he decided to go that there were two missionaries that were sent from the London Missionary Society who were killed and eaten by these cannibals in one of these islands as soon as they landed on shore. But John Payton and his wife had great hopes and dreams. They were very eager to go. But when they landed there, they found out very quickly that life was extremely hard. And in fact, in less than a year uh, from the time when they went there, he lost both his wife and his newborn child to fever. He said what was harder than losing them was the fact that he was all alone. He had to dig their graves with his own hands next to his house, and he, it, even though it was a very dark time for him, he decided that he was going to stay there, and he stayed there for the next four years with frequent situations of incredible danger. So, for example, he never knew when his house was going to be surrounded by the natives, angry, coming to take his life. And so, what he would do is he would sleep with all his clothes on, with his faithful dog watching so that he would be ready to run at a moment's notice. And on one occasion, uh, a large number of natives actually surrounded his house And they were coming to get him. And one of the men who was there started rushing at him with an axe to take his life. But the Lord protected him. Another time, an angry chief was chasing him around for four hours with a loaded musket to take his life. There would even be times when John Payton would go to care for the sick, uh, the natives who were sick and they would try to take his life even then he said at times he wondered whether these people could really be brought to the point of saving faith and in addition to all of this he was also sick frequently and at the point of death many many times if you read his biography you will hear that him saying that his life was very hard deciding to go into missions and finally, after four years, he was forced to leave the island, and he did not see any fruit, and he felt defeated. You know, when we read stories like this, the obvious questions that come to our mind are, how does one cope with this sort of experience? How did, how did John Payton not just give up or go mad? How does one make sense of God living in a place like this, in a time like this? Well, today we are going to look at Psalm 86. And we will hear the psalmist considering some of these questions that we are just asking. Please turn in your Bible to Psalm 86. A prayer of David. David. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love towards me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your, ser- give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see me and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Well, there are three things I would like for us to see about our God from this psalm. And if you're taking down notes, this might be helpful. But the first thing that I'd like for us to see is that our God hears our prayers. And we'll see that from verses one to seven. God hears our prayers. And next we'll see that our God is great. And we'll see that from verses eight to 13. And finally, we'll see that our God delivers us. We'll see that from verses 14 to 17. Well, let's turn our attention to the first stanza of this psalm, verses 1 to 7. There's a lot that we can learn about prayer from this psalm. As we see at the beginning of the psalm, this is a, a prayer of David. And uh, this is, there's, there are many prayers of David that we get in the psalms. But um, this is one prayer that David prayed as a man who is threatened and he is desperately pleading with God to save him. We don't really know who exactly is out to get him from this psalm. But one thing we know as we read, especially those first seven verses, is that David seems to be very helpless. And he wants God to answer him, to listen to him. Verse 1, he says, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Verse 2, he says, Preserve my life, save your servant. And in three, he says, be gracious to me, to you I cry all the day. This is the prayer of a man who has nowhere else to turn to. He finds himself having no ability to save himself. And all he can do at this point is to cry. Says he cries all the day for God to save him. See, the picture we get of David here is like a child who is crying who is clinging to their parent, fearful child who's crying to protect protect them. And we read in verse 4 that David is saying that he feels his heart overwhelmed with fears. He asks God, gladden the soul of your servant, for I lift up my soul, O Lord. He'll take any comfort he can get. He wants to experience some joy, some peace in the midst of This trying situation and his insurmountable fear seems to be hiding God's face from him. It's a dark time for David and he's praying that the clouds will lift. I wonder if you have ever had a time in your life when you felt this way, when you felt that the problems in your life were so great and you felt completely helpless, hopeless. Maybe it was a financial difficulty that you went through and uh, maybe you lost your job and you didn't know how you were going to be able to get by. You didn't know how you're going to be able to pay the bills or to take care of your family, even the next month. And you were feeling desperate for God to help you. Or maybe it was a serious health issue that you were facing, something that was even threatening to take your life. Or maybe it was not something in your life but in the life of one of your loved ones. Do you remember a time when you were feeling overwhelmed with anxiety, crippled with fear, desperate for God to work in your life? How, What was different about your prayers then? You know, often it's when we see that our needs are great, when we see that we have nowhere to turn to, that we cry to God for help it is when we see that we are powerless to change the situation or the circumstances in our life, then our posture in prayer becomes one of humble dependence on God. You know, I must confess, even teaching you about prayer, how hard that is. It is easier to write a sermon on prayer than to pray. It is easier to read a book on prayer than to pray especially when times are good. But David is pleading with God to answer him. He wants to know that his cries are going to be heard. Now, David gives us many reasons for why God should answer him. If you look at just those seven verses, verses 1 to 7, notice the number of times he repeats the word for. Each one of them is a reason for why he thinks God should listen to him. But the main reason David gives for why God should listen to him is verse 5. He says, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. In other words, God's character in David's mind is the basis for David's prayer. You know, sometimes we think that God is in the business of hearing our prayers and answering our prayers. We forget that we are praying to the God of the universe. We forget who it is that we are speaking to. And the only reason why God should listen to our prayers is because our God is good and he's forgiving and he's abounding in steadfast love. You realize that if it wasn't for God's character that David reflects on here, there would be no reason for him to listen to us when we pray. You see, Christians have a great reason to pray. It's because God has displayed to them his steadfast love in the person of Christ. Jesus came to die on the cross, rise from the dead so that sinners can be saved, and so that they can have a continual experience of enjoyment in their relationship with God. Christians can continue to experience God's steadfast love all the days of their lives. And it is because Christ's blood was shed on the cross that we have access to God, that we have an audience with God when we pray. It is because Christ is seated on his throne right now, at this moment, interceding for us, praying to God for us, that we can pray. That's why God hears our prayers. The price paid for our prayers to be heard, my friends, was great. It took the death of Son of God, for God to hear our prayers, for us to come before God. Now, friends, I just want to say, maybe there's some of you here this morning that feel like you don't have this experience with God, that you don't know God in, and the saving grace of God in your life. Well, I just want to say the good news that we read in the Bible is that it is not because of your good works that God accepts you. It is not even because of how fervent your prayers are that you can come before God. But all the work that needs to be done for you to approach God boldly has been done by Christ. It is simply because of his death, his resurrection from the dead, that we can approach God. Anyone can approach God. So if you are here this morning and you're considering what does it mean to experience this relationship with God that we read in the Bible, that Christians talk about. Well, I just want to say that you can experience that today if you repent of your sin and turn to this Jesus in faith. God promises that he will begin a relationship with you today if that is you. And God's throne is accessible to anyone who would approach him through faith in Christ. My dear Christian brothers and sisters, we have great confidence in prayer. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing to know that God listens to our cries? That we can be absolutely certain about that? That God listens to us? He may not always answer us the way we want, but we can be sure that he hears us. Our confidence that God listens to us should not lead to complacency. It should not lead to apathy, but instead should drive us to get on our knees and pray fervently. We should plead with God in our prayers, just like we see David doing here, or to use the language that the Puritan used for prayer, we must wrestle with God in prayer. But we should know that the reason we want to plead with God is not because God is distant or because God is passive, because he does not care. But our pleading in prayer, our earnestness in prayer, only shows how much we are depending on him and not on us as we come before him. You see, our prayers say a lot about our relationship with God. Prince, I want to ask you, what would it look like for you to desperately cling to this God in your prayers? And you know, because God has invited us to come before him boldly, not only should that motivate us to pray, but it should also move us to pray big, bold prayers. We should ask God to do the impossible things that he has said he's going to do in his word. So let's pray that God would open the eyes of the blind in this world. That God would convert the hardest of hearts so that they too can come to enjoy Christ, that God would maybe even use this church to send out people like John Payton that we heard about at the beginning to reach those hardest-to-reach people for the good news of Jesus. My dear friends, pray big prayers because you can. You know, there are countless stories of how God has answered big prayers in missions. It's lots of stories. But one that particularly stands out to me, many of you may have heard of this man. His name is William Carey. He's also known as the father of modern missions. But before William Carey was a missionary, he was a shoemaker in England. And God put on his heart a burden for the nations to come to know Jesus. And so what he would do is um, he made a map of the world from leather He tacked it on his wall, and he would pray for the nations as he was working on his shoes. And then eventually, God answered William Carey's prayers. He was able to go to India as one of the first missionaries to the land. Now, what many people don't know about William Carey is that he had a sister whose name is Polly who was bedridden and completely paralyzed for 52 years in her life. William would write back to his sister about how difficult his job was in bringing the gospel to India, and Polly would pray faithfully for her brother. In fact, she prayed every day for 52 years for the gospel to have success in India. William Carey's efforts in India were blessed because of her sister's prayers one of the great achievements of William Carey going to India was that he was able to translate the Bible into 37 Indian dialects. And he also became an inspiration for many other missionaries to go. Well, friend, if God could use Pauli and others to shine the light of the gospel in hard places, then he can do the same with you, with the prayers of your church. Pray for God to shine the light of his gospel in the dark places of the world today. Just one practical thing you can do if you want to know how to pray for the unreached people in the world, there is a website that can really help you called Joshua Project. You can go there and every day they give you an unreached people that you can pray for. You pray for those people just anytime you meet, or you could pray for those people every time you have your quiet time in the morning. It just needs to take 10 minutes. But you could pray through the unreached peoples of this world and see how, what God will do with that. You know, if we are honest with ourselves, although we know that we should pray, sometimes the challenges just seem so big. The concerns seem so great. It's difficult to pray. Difficult to have the faith to pray. What do we do? Well, like David in the psalm, when we see that our problems are big, we need to see that our God is bigger. That's what we'll turn our attention to next. How great our God is. Verse 8 to 13. You know what's interesting about the psalm, especially this section in the psalm, it's like the meat in the middle of the sandwich. So if you notice, the first uh, verses that we looked at, verses 1 to 7, is David praying, God save me. He's desperately praying for God to save him. And he returns back to that prayer in the final stanza, verses 14 to 17. He prays similarly, God save me. These people are out to get my life. But here, it's like as if David just paused for a few seconds to meditate on the greatness of God. And he wants to remind himself of the God that he is praying to. You know, there is nothing like meditating on the greatness of God to make our hearts amazed at him. Our God is great. You know, one of the reasons why we feel that our hearts are growing cold to missions, growing cold to wanting to see the lost be saved, is because we forget that our God is sovereign, that our God is supreme, that we worship a great God, that there is none like him. But we should look at his works to see how great this God is. Verse 8, David says, there is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. And in 10, he says, you are great, do wondrous things, you alone are God. See, there is no one greater than God. He's the creator of the world. The Bible describes the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks, the sea, the vast oceans, the dry land. He made all of it with his word. He's so powerful. The creatures that are teeming in the sea, that are in the depths of the ocean, creatures and living things that mankind will never discover in our lives in this world, they exist there. All to say that God created them. He formed them and he sustains them. You know, one of the great things about living in the UAE is that we can get to easily travel to some beautiful parts of the world um, that are all around us. You know, for me, one of the most beautiful places I've ever been to is when I visited a tea estate high in the hills of Sri Lanka. I had never witnessed such beauty before. Beautiful skies. They were blue in color. Blue skies. Calm one day, and the next day, they would turn to be gray and terrifying. To see lush greenery with all kinds of birds, all kinds of creatures. To see breathtaking views of valleys down below. It was like something out of a dream. And even though I believed in God, I couldn't help but ask the question, what kind of a God is responsible for this unbelievable creation? You cannot help but worship God when you look at creation. Psalm 8 talks about how God flung the moon and the stars into space with his fingertips. That's who this God is. You know, when we see how great our God is, We will see how worthless the idols of this world are. You see, it is our sin that blinds us to seeing how great our God is. It is our sin that keeps us from seeing how great his works are. You know, in Job chapter 12, we read this this series of questions. Ask the animals they will teach you, or the birds in the sky and they will tell you, or speak to the earth and it will teach you. Or let the fish in the sea inform you. Which of all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? You know, we never see animals and fish worship idols. There's much that we can learn from them about the greatness of our God. You understand that the greatness of our God inevitably means that all the nations of the world will worship him. Verse 9, he says, All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Our God is greater than all the nations. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, we hear of the vision that John has about what it's going to look like one day. He tells us, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the land. It's hard for us to imagine how this is going to be possible, isn't it, as we live in this world right now? You see, today, Christians go into missions all around the world, but they face much discouragement. Often, their plans fail Often we hear stories of how missionaries say they are seeing little or no fruit. And any growth that they see is happening so slowly and it is so small. And when we look at the numbers, there are still so many nations that are yet to be reached with the gospel. So many people that have no access to anyone who can teach them the good news of Jesus. It's hard to look at the statistics. But maybe the discouragement is more closer for you, um, closer to home for you. Maybe you are witnessing Christ to your friends and your family and your co-workers, but you're seeing no fruit. You're trying and trying, but nobody seems to be wanting to listen. It's hard sometimes to keep going on, isn't it? Whenever we get discouraged, we need to turn to passages like this. You need to turn to the Psalms to read the promises that God has given us. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-seven. 27, we read, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. You understand, God is so great that it is impossible for him to fail to fulfill his promises. It is not possible. The Great Commission will happen. The nations will worship Christ. It is a guarantee because of how great our God is. See, Satan would love to stop this from happening. Those opposed to the cross of Christ are working right now to bring this to an end. But can anything really stop God from fulfilling his purposes, from bringing all nations to worship Christ? Jesus says, I will build my church And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. See, not only is God's greatness shown to us in the world generally, you know, we look at his creation, we can see how great our God is. But as we will see in verse 13, we have also come to see his greatness personally in our lives. Perhaps the greatest miracle that God does in this world is the miracle of conversion. Conversion. The greatest work that we can experience in our life is God bringing sinners from death to life. Think about that for a second. More than the creation of stars and galaxies, more than the creation of anything in this world, is the creation of new life in a believer. We know that because that is why Jesus became incarnate. He obeyed the Father perfectly, he died on the cross, he rose from the dead also that sinners will be saved. They will be brought to life in Christ. Do we realize this when we hear the testimony of Christians when they talk about how God saved them? Are we amazed every time someone recounts to us the great work that God has done in their life when God saved them? What about your own conversion? Are you amazed at what God has done in your life? How God has saved you When you were walking in darkness, foolish, slaves to sin, how he saved you? Does your testimony make you praise God at the great work that he has done in his son? Does it make you want to sing like David in verse 13? Regardless of what your circumstances that you're going through right now in your life, does it make you want to sing like David? Great is your steadfast love towards me. You have delivered My soul from the depths of Sheol. Friends, it's so easy for us to forget what God has done in our lives. So easy for us to lose the sense of amazement and wonder that we had, maybe when we first came to Christ. But if you are in Christ, know this, you will be standing around the throne of the Lamb, worshipping Christ in eternity. And the power of the Lord has done this. It's amazing. Even angels long to look into what we have experienced as Christians in Christ, but cannot. They can enjoy creation, but not the redemption that we have in Christ. God's great work is truly amazing. He's great. Well, as we think about the greatness of our God, how should we respond? David says in verse 11, He says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. See what's going on. David is running for his life. He's fighting for his life. He's about to be killed. But right now, as he pauses to consider how great his God is, his prayer is that he would learn more about God and that he would fear him and he would obey him. Friends, it should be the chief concern of our lives, too, that no matter what our situation is, that we would want to obey him, to walk in obedience to Jesus, to fear him. It is the natural response of meditating on the greatness of God, especially as we think about the fact that God has changed our hearts so that we can walk in obedience to Christ. Friends, as we read about what God is doing and showing his greatness in this passage, we can see, living in the UAE gives us a unique privilege to see how God is doing this all over the world. God is bringing sinners all over the world to worship Christ. But what is astounding to us, what should be, is that in this great work God is doing, He is allowing us to participate in it. He's causing us to be a part of this great work of salvation that God is doing in saving sinners. Now, I don't know how you think about your efforts of evangelism every day. You may think of yourself as small and weak, but know that as long as you are on God's side, victory is for sure. Have you seen the movie, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe? It's based on C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. And uh, one of the main characters, the main character, really, in the the movie, the book, is Aslan, the lion, who's the Christ figure. Well, there is an epic battle that happens at the end of the movie. Great fight scene. And uh, in this fight scene, it's not really clear who will win. It's clear that the wicked side, they're powerful, they outnumber the good side. It seems like they are going to lose. But suddenly Aslan, who everyone thought was dead, appears on the scene. And everyone is amazed. They stop in their tracks. Even the wicked witch suddenly looks fearful. And suddenly, the battle shifts in favor of the good side. Aslan so far surpasses everyone in strength and power that his appearing leaves no doubt as to who is going to win even before he begins to fight, it's clear that they're going to be victorious. This is a powerful picture of what it looks like as we go out into battle for the souls of those who are lost for the sake of the gospel. We might feel like we are weak, can be beaten down and crushed, but we cannot lose. And that is because our God is so incredibly great. But know also that God uses weak Christians, weak churches, weak churches, Weak vessels. And that is because God is great. Well, David, after meditating on the greatness of God in these verses, turns to pray again that God will deliver him. So let's look at the last remaining verses, verses 14 to 17. We get some more information in verse 14 about who these men are that are out to get David. They're a band of ruthless men. Men who did not fear God, becomes more clear that the reason why they're trying to kill David is because he's a he's godly and they are opposed to God, as we see in verse fourteen. So David cries out to him, out to God, that God would deliver him. See, persecution is something Jesus promised for all those who would choose to follow him. In fact, Jesus says, Unless you're willing to lose your life for the sake of the gospel and him you will not even gain it. So if we choose to live a life of following Christ, we may too find ourselves crying out to God like David for deliverance that we see in the psalm. I wonder what does this feel like? Maybe some of you already know this. Maybe there are people right now in your lives that are opposing you at work, that are, speaking, that are not speaking the truth about you, And maybe they are against you because of your faith in Christ. And it's difficult. And you are crying out to God for deliverance from them. But maybe it's worse. Maybe these people that are opposed to you because of your faith in Christ are not in your workplace, but they are really in your homes. They are part of your families. And unlike a 9-to-5 job, you cannot leave them and go away. You have to see them. You have to live with them. And you're crying out for deliverance, just like David is. Can we trust God to deliver us? See, in verse 15, David's praying, in the middle of David's praying for God's deliverance, he repeats something that he's repeated over and over again. In fact, that verse is identical to what he prayed in verse 5. He calls on the name of God that we hear God saying in Exodus chapter 34. Many of you are familiar with the story in Exodus chapter 34. Israel has just committed a grievous sin. They had made a golden calf when Moses was away for a long time. And God was going to pour his wrath on his people and wipe them out completely. But Moses intercedes and God listens and Moses makes a bold request to God. He says, Show me your glory. And in God revealing his glory to Moses, this is what God says. He says this is his name in verse 6 of Exodus chapter 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty, Visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. See, when God wants to show his glory, when God wants to proclaim his name, he declares that he he talks about his steadfast love, his goodness, his mercy, his forgiveness, his justice. And it is because of God's steadfast love that is really repeated three times in the psalm that David is able to trust this God. And David is able to know that this God is going to help and comfort him. See, friends, we have a more notable sign than even David had of God's steadfast love to us. We see this on the cross where our Lord Jesus stretched out his hand and died for sinners like you and me. See, we are not like David in this psalm. We are like the insolent men, the ruthless men, men who did not fear God. That's who Christ died for. Christ died not just because he was great, but also because of his steadfast love for us. See, God does not promise to deliver us from all our earthly fires, our problems in this world. He does not promise to deliver us, as hard as this can sound, from even persecution that can come to us on account of following Jesus. But he promises to deliver us on the last day, on that judgment day, Because of his steadfast love for us See, it's only as we understand And have confidence that God will deliver our lives on that day That we will be able to live our lives now For his glory Friends, we need daily reminders that God has been gracious to us That we are living not for ourselves That we are purchased by Christ Redeemed by him We are slaves of Christ He's our sovereign Lord He's our master and king And he has secured our eternal destiny for us. As we know that, we can be ready to throw away our lives for the sake of the gospel. You remember the story of Peyton that I started off with? You know, when Peyton was first thinking about going as a missionary, when he shared this in his church, an older Christian man objected to him going with these words, told Peyton, you will be eaten by cannibals. Peyton replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or worms. And in that great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Peyton had every confidence that God was going to deliver him on that last day. That's why he was able to go. Peyton returned back to Scotland, seeing no fruit from those four years. But he was resolved, unwilling to give up preaching the gospel to the cannibals. So he went back again with his second wife to another island filled with cannibals. And there he saw incredible fruit from his gospel ministry. In fact, the entire island turned to Christ. And his going caused an awakening in the Church of Scotland that they then started sending missionaries one after another till these islands were reached. Peyton, like many others, was willing to throw away his life for the sake of the gospel and was able to see how God used it. You know, friends, I want to encourage you to live with great resolve to make Christ known. Encourage one another to think about who it is that God has put in your life right now that does not know Jesus and what you can do to begin to talk to them about Christ. Think about, are there sacrifices that you can make Changes that you can make to your life right now so that you can live strategically for the gospel here in Abu Dhabi. Let me close with this quote from John Payton's biography as he reflects on his missionary service. This is what he has to say. He says, This is the noblest service in which any human being can spend or be spent and that if God gave me back my life to be lived over again, I would, without one quiver of hesitation, lay it on the altar to Christ, that he might use it as before in similar ministries of love, especially amongst those who have never yet heard the name of Jesus. Nothing that has been endured and nothing that can now befall me makes me tremble. On the contrary, I deeply rejoice when I breathe the prayer that it may please the blessed Lord to turn the hearts of all my children to the mission field, that he may open up their way and make it their pride and joy to live and die in carrying Jesus and his gospel into the heart of the heathen world. God gave his best, his son to me, and I give back my best, my all to him. Let's pray. God, we do thank you, Lord, for examples like Peyton that inspire us to live our lives with abandon. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the work that you have done in our lives through your son, Jesus. We thank you for the salvation that we have come to receive as a free gift from him. We thank you that our eternal destiny is secure. We pray, Lord, that you would use us to be bold for the good news of Jesus so that many who are lost would come to know him. Pray this, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen.